country singer and Texas native Miranda Lambert has a song called Automatic that bemoans the fact that everything comes quickly and easily these days. In the song, she sings about how it used to be in the good old days before everything became automatic. Quarter in a payphone, drying laundry on the line, watching sun tea in the window, pocket watch for telling time. Seems like only yesterday I'd get a blank cassette, record the country countdown because I couldn't buy it yet. If you had something to say, you'd write it on a piece of paper. Then you'd put a stamp on it and they'd get it three days later. Boys would call the girls and the girls would turn them down. Staying married was the only way to work your problems out. Hey, whatever happened to waiting your turn, doing it all by hand, because when everything is handed to you, it's only worth as much as the time put in. It all just seemed so good the way we had it, back before everything became automatic. Let's roll the windows down, windows with the cranks. Come on, let's take a picture, the kind you got to shake. It all just seemed so good the way we had it, back before everything became automatic. Do you remember that? Those were the good old days, taking a Kodak picture and watching it slide out, and then you had to shake it so it would develop. Remember that? What about payphones? Remember those? Writing letters? Sun tea in the window, patiently brewing? Recording the country or top 40 countdown on cassette. Do you remember what? Do you kids even know what cassette tapes are? We won't go to eight tracks. (laughs) Rolling your car windows down and it was a workout. Remember those old car window handles before we had the buttons that do the work for us? Those were the good old days. And now we live in a society and a culture when everything is automatic. Your paycheck can be deposited straight into your bank account. You can watch whole seasons of shows on Netflix in one sitting. You can give to the church electronically. In fact, we have a church app. and You can give your tithe on there and it takes about seven seconds. Who needs a payphone? Who needs letters when you can use a smartphone to call someone, email someone, surf the internet, get on social media, listen to podcasts, or take pictures that you don't have to shake? Or you can do 10,000 other things. And because we are immersed in this culture of automatic, we are especially in danger of viewing Jesus this way. It is very easy and maybe even natural for us to assume that Jesus' obedience was automatic. But what the preacher of Hebrews wants us to know, especially because we live in a culture of automatic, the preacher wants us to know that Jesus did not live life on autopilot. He did not live his life on automatic pilot. Obedience did not come automatically to Jesus. Instead, in order to obey the Father completely, in order to obey the law completely, 
Jesus had to suffer comprehensively. He had to be put in all kinds of situations and all kinds of scenarios where he would be tempted and where he would learn to obey. His obedience was far from automatic. Jesus had to experience pain and sorrow and agony and betrayal and abandonment and hurtful words and heartache so that he could obey the law for us in that context. And it was in the context of this immense suffering that Jesus learned to obey the law for us. He learned to obey his Father as he suffered incredibly. And it wasn't automatic. So in order to obey, Jesus had to suffer Every single day. In order to obey, Jesus had to suffer every day in all kinds of ways. And his sufferings increased more and more and with more intensity as he grew older. And every time Jesus obeyed, he knew it would get harder and harder. And Jesus didn't take the easy way out. When the fires of suffering got hotter, he got stronger until he was ready to go to the cross. So please do not picture Jesus having an easy life. Please do not picture Jesus on autopilot, automatically obeying without blinking an eye. In order to obey the law for us, in order to become the second Adam, Jesus had to go through hell on earth. He had to experience pain and suffering and sorrow and agony and betrayal and hardship and heartache. And it was in that context that he learned obedience. And his obedience was anything but automatic. So look at Hebrews chapter 5. We'll back up to verse 7, which we looked at last week, just to get our our feet wet again. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The preacher of Hebrews says something very staggering here. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What does that even mean? What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, one of the keys to understanding what it means that Jesus learned obedience to what he suffered is the phrase at the beginning, although he was a son. Remember what we saw back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And remember what we saw a few weeks ago back in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 5. Keep the context in mind and keep in mind that the pastor of Hebrews has just quoted Psalm 2 in Hebrews 5.5 where he says this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And remember the the broader context of Psalm 2 that he's quoting in Hebrews 5.5. Psalm 2 verses 6 through 9 says, As for me, this is God the Father speaking, I have set my king on Zion on my holy hill. 
And then Jesus, the son, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So when you read the words in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 5, when you read the words, although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered, you need to read them like this. Although he was a son who was installed as king of creation, he learned obedience to what he suffered. Although he was a son who will destroy his enemies with the war club, he learned obedience to what he suffered. So when you read the word son in verse 8, you need to keep in mind verse 5, that this son, Jesus, he is the anointed king of all creation who will smash his enemies to pieces. And this king had to learn obedience through what he suffered. But that's not how people think of kings today, is it? Kings aren't supposed to suffer, are they? Kings are supposed to have a a relatively easy life where people wait on them hand and foot. Kings are not supposed to suffer. As Steve Park says, we expect kings to be robed in majesty, not clothed in agony and nailed to a cross. But that's exactly what happened to the king in Psalm 2. And it's crazy. It's ludicrous, it's, it's astounding, it's mind-blowing, it's flabbergasting that God would allow his son, the king who reigns over all nations, the son through whom he created the entire universe, that he would allow him to suffer at the hands of his enemies. What humility and what patience being displayed by God and what a crazy plan. How does Jesus conquer? How does Jesus subdue his enemies? How does Jesus redeem his elect people? By suffering and dying. By dying in their place for their sins. By dying in our place for our sins. You won't find any king or kingdom like that anywhere. You won't find any king or any politician anywhere who will lay down their life like Jesus the Son. And so the eternal Son of God, who has been installed as king over all creation by his Father, this king, this Son, had to learn obedience through what he suffered. Now, it's staggering that Jesus had to suffer when you consider the nature of his relationship with his Father. It's staggering because of the intimate relationship that Jesus has with his Father. And what is that relationship like between Jesus and God the Father? What was it like in eternity past before the incarnation? Here's what it was like. God the Father has been loving his son Jesus in and through the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. That's what the relationship was like in eternity past. God the Father has always been loving his son Jesus in and through the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And Jesus has always been loving his Father in and through the Holy Spirit in eternity past. And that's why we should not think of God first as creator, why we should not think of God first as ruler, why we should not think of God first even as king. 
God has first and foremost revealed himself not as the creator, not as the ruler of the universe, not even as the king of all nations, not even as the warrior of Psalm 2 who wields a war club. But God instead has first revealed himself as father. God has first and foremost revealed himself as a loving heavenly Father, he is God the Father. And being a father means that God has an eternal son whom he loves with all of his heart, Jesus. And being a son means that Jesus has a father whom he loves with all of his heart. And God the Father and God the Son were loving each other in and through the Holy Spirit in eternity past, long before God ever created anything. Long before he ever ruled over any angels or any demons or any human beings. What was God doing in eternity past before he created the world through his son, as Hebrews 1-2 says? What was God doing before he created the world? Even before he created angels, what was he doing? We think it's boring. He's just sitting there waiting. No, he was loving his son Jesus. So before there was anything, even before there were angels, before there was anything, there was God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving and enjoying one another's company, if you will. God the Father was loving his Son, Jesus, in eternity past. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us in John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's his elect people, They may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God sent Jesus so that we would get swept away like a tsunami with God's love for his own son, Jesus. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. The triune God loving his redeemed people with the love that he shared in eternity past. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created out of the overflow of this eternal love and we were made to respond to and to enjoy this love. We were made to get swept up in the love that exists between God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. This is why God created humanity, so that we will be swept away by his eternal love and glorify and enjoy him forever. It's what you were made for. It's what you were made to live for. It's what you were made to delight in. It's what you were made to soak up. It's what you were made to enjoy. It's what you were made to treasure forever. Are you treasuring the love of God that he has for his son, that he's invited you to come and enjoy it? That's why he made you, to get caught up in this amazing eternal love. 
but in order for us to get swept up in this eternal love. Jesus, God's beloved son, had to learn obedience through what he suffered. The eternal son, who was and is loved by the father, this son had to learn obedience through what he suffered in his incarnation as the eternal plan of redemption was playing out in real time. So look again back at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, please don't rush past those words. Those five words, although he was a son, are very important. It's why we're slowing down and, and spending so much time on this. Those five words are very important because they tell you that Jesus had a father A father who knew that his eternally loved son would have to learn obedience to what he suffered. So it's very important for us to see this here. Jesus, the son, has a father. And so when we talk about being a Christ-centered church, when we talk about the Son of God, when when we talk about sermons being centered around and pointing to Jesus, the Son, when we sing about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the coronation of Jesus, the Son, when we rehearse the gospel about what Jesus has done for us, We are not highlighting Jesus, the Son, over the Father or to the exclusion of God the Father. When we say that we preach Christ-centered sermons, we are not highlighting Jesus over God the Father or to the exclusion of God the Father. In fact, by focusing on Jesus, the Son, we are acknowledging that he has a Father. By talking about Jesus all the time, by talking about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, we are saying that he has a Father that loves him in and through the Holy Spirit. That means then that the place to start when discussing the triune God is to begin with Jesus the Son. Not just God in some vague sense, like, who do you worship at grace? God. I'm not talking about just this vague sense, well, tell me about this God that you worship. Our discussions of God must not start with some vague concept of God. Our discussions of God must begin with Jesus because when we start with Jesus the Son, we then have to acknowledge that Jesus the Son of God has a Father because sons have Father. And when we focus on Jesus the Son, that leads us to God the Father who loves his Son in and through the Holy Spirit. And when we start with Jesus, the Son, that leads us to the Father. And when we see God as Father, we see that God is a loving Father through and through. Through and through. What we discover is that God the Father is love. Father is not some job description of God. He created this world as a loving, selfless, giving father. He rules as a loving, selfless, giving father. He creates as a loving, selfless, giving father. All that God the Father does, he does as a father. So yes, make no mistake about it. He is the sovereign creator. He is the ruler of all. Yes, he created this world through his son Jesus, as Hebrews 1-2 says, through King Jesus. 
but God sovereignly creates as a father. Now, that may be hard for some of you to grasp because you didn't have a good father. So your concept of father, you hear that and you think, I don't like that image of God. Can't get your image of God the father from your father. But as father, and this is staggering, and this is mind-blowing, and this is flabbergasting, and this is staggering. As a father, God sent his son, Jesus, whom he loved eternally, God sent his son Jesus who had to learn obedience through what he suffered. In his incarnation, as the eternal plan of redemption was playing out in in real time, as it was unfolding in real time, Jesus had to learn obedience as he suffered. The one who was loved by God the Father in eternity past had to learn obedience through what he suffered The one who was loved and cherished by his father had to learn obedience through what he suffered. When God sent his son Jesus to suffer, he sent him as a loving father. It was a loving father who sent his son. And so when we start our discussions about God with Jesus, the son, that leads us to the father who loves his son. And that's why it's mind-blowing to read Hebrews 5.8. It's mind-blowing to read, although he was a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered. It's mind-blowing because Jesus is God's beloved son, and yet he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. You would think Hebrews 5 would read, because he was a son, he had a pretty easy life. Because he was a son, he took the easy way out. He took the easy route. But that's not what it says. And that's why it's staggering that the eternal Son of God, the one loved by God the Father, had to learn obedience to what he suffered. And this is the background to what we'll see in Hebrews 5.8 today. Why would Jesus, the begotten Son of God, the one loved by his Father, and the one who loved his Father, why would he need to learn obedience? Why would the eternal Son of God need to learn obedience through what he suffered? Why did he have to suffer? He's a son loved by his Father. Well, first understand that this is not referring to Jesus' divine nature as God. When the preacher of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience, he is talking about the incarnation of Jesus. That's why he says, in the days of his flesh, back in verse 7. In his human nature, Jesus learned obedience. So the preacher of Hebrews is speaking about how Jesus learned obedience as a human being, as the God-man, while living on the earth, in the days of his flesh, as the eternal plan of redemption was playing out in real time. What we must understand about Jesus is that Jesus did not live life on autopilot. He had to learn to obey as he suffered. What did Jesus do in his flesh as a human being? All the days that he lived on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. What we saw last week in Hebrews 5-7. He learned obedience in his human nature. As a human being, Jesus needed to pray. He needed to cry out to God. As a human being, he needed assistance and help and power through the Holy Spirit. And that's why he prayed. And that's why he cried out those loud prayers that we talked about last week. His prayers and his loud cries and his tears prove that Jesus' obedience was anything but automatic. 
And so what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? Here's the answers of what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean. When the preacher says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, it does not mean that Jesus finally figured out how to obey as if he had disobeyed before. It does not mean that Jesus was born a sinner and eventually he figured out how to obey and how not to sin. It does not mean that Jesus disobeyed his father in the early stages of his incarnation, and then he finally figured out this obedience thing after a few years, and then he resisted sin. It's not like Jesus had been struggling to obey, and then he finally figured it out as he grew older. What Jesus learned in his incarnation was to obey his father in a very, very, very hard context, in the context of suffering in the context of agony, in the context of hardship, in the context of persecution, in the context of pain, in the context of loud cries and tears. When he became a man, Jesus had to learn to obey his father in the context of suffering and agony and hardship and persecution. He had to learn to obey his father through and in the midst of the fires of testing, in the midst of the fires of suffering. In his incarnation, as the eternal plan of redemption was playing out in real time, he had to learn obedience as he suffered every single day. And so what does it mean that Jesus learned obedience through what it suffered? When the preacher says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, it means that he learned that as he obeyed his father in the context of much suffering, he knew more suffering is on its way. As he grew, he knew that as he obeyed his father, more suffering would come his way. And as he obeyed in that suffering, then even more intense suffering would come. And then even more intense suffering would come his way. And as he obeyed in the context of that suffering, then even more intense suffering was on its way, and so on and so on. His sufferings kept increasing and became more intense with time. It isn't like Jesus just kind of walked through life and moseyed around and healed people and did miracles. And then the big test of the garden came in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the big test of the cross came. It was every single day as he's suffering and learning to obey, he knows the sufferings are going to be more intense and more intense and more intense. Here's why we should marvel at Jesus. He knew that as he obeyed, it's just going to heat up more and more and more. He knew that as he obeyed his father in the midst of affliction and suffering, then more and greater suffering and affliction would come. And knowing this, Jesus resisted the temptation to avoid suffering. He knew that as he obeyed his father, then the fires would only heat up more and more and persecution would increase until the day came when they cried, crucify him. And Jesus didn't run from this. He didn't say, hey, I'm a son. I'm a king. Sons and kings live the easy life. He stayed true to his father by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that each act of obedience would only aggravate the intensity of his suffering. And that's astonishing because we avoid suffering at all costs, don't we? Now, I'm not saying that we should be these crazy people who crave and desire suffering. I just want to suffer today. I'm not saying we should be that way, but we do avoid suffering at all costs, don't we? 
And Jesus didn't, and that's why he is a great high priest, because whatever you are suffering today, relational strife, heartache, pain, physical pain that just won't go away, whatever it is that you're suffering today, you have a high priest, a great high priest who is merciful and sympathetic, and when you go to him, he knows exactly what you are talking about because he never got relief. You might get relief. He never did. And that's why you can go to him and he understands. He knew all of his suffering was preparing him for the cross and that's why he prayed the way he did with loud cries and tears because his prayers, what he prayed for and how he prayed, those prayers were directly related to what happened on the cross. But it means even more than this. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered How did he learn to obey? I think it means that as he obeyed the lighter demands of his father, in the context of lighter sufferings, it was preparing him for greater demands and greater sufferings. As Jesus obeyed the lighter demands of his father, which when he was a teenager was putting up with his siblings, he knew, as I obey the lighter demands of my father, They're preparing me for greater demands in the context of greater suffering. As he obeyed the lighter demands of his father in the context of lighter sufferings, it was preparing him for greater demands in the context of greater sufferings, which were all moving him and preparing him for the cross. And we'll talk more about that next week, that preparation. So God the Father was preparing his son for his final act of obedience, death on a cross, by taking him through less difficult situations in order to get him ready to die on the cross. And it was as Jesus prayed and obeyed throughout his life that he was being prepared and ready for that act of obedience whereby he would go to the cross to bear the sins of his elect people. It was through these fires of testing and suffering that Jesus was being perfected. More on that next week. And what was the ultimate suffering that he had to experience? It was the cross. The ultimate suffering for Jesus was when he bore the curse for our sins on the cross. It was being the recipient of the full fury and wrath of God for our rebellion. And all of his suffering was leading him here and preparing him for this moment. All the times that he learned to obey in the context of severe suffering, they were preparing him for the cross. John Piper said, what is the greatest obstacle between you as a sinner and you with every need and desire met eternally happy in God? Most of us would say that that greatest obstacle is our guilt or God's wrath. Romans 8.32 says that God's love for his son is the biggest obstacle in the way. Could God, would God overcome his cherishing, admiring white-hot, infinite bond with his son and hand him over to be lied about, betrayed, denied, abandoned, mocked, flogged, spit on, nailed to a cross, pierced, and butchered. That is the biggest obstacle to my salvation. And the text says he did. God did not spare his own son. He gave him up to the worst possible suffering. He loved you so much that he gave up his son to the worst possible suffering through his life culminating at the cross. And because God gave Jesus up increasingly 
to suffering throughout his life. He was ready to face the worst possible suffering any human being could suffer. It was all those years when Jesus was learning to obey in the context of suffering that were preparing him for the cross. And that's why he struggled so much in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what he was facing. And it wasn't just the physical suffering of the cross that Jesus was asking to be removed from. It is a pain that is far greater and far deeper. He would become the center of God's wrath and anger. And in that moment, he would be completely abandoned and forsaken by his father. He had never experienced this before. Remember the eternal Love between Jesus and his father and at the cross the father would pour his wrath out on his beloved son and turn away. Jesus would be abandoned and forsaken by his father for our sin. All the bad that we have done were laid upon him on the cross and all the good that he did throughout his life is given to us. This is why Jesus asked his father in the garden if this cup could pass from him. The picture we see of Jesus in the garden is anything but automatic. There is a great struggle here. And all of the great struggles through his life were preparing him for this moment. And Jesus knew the cup that he must drink was the cup of God's wrath at our sin. Jesus knew he had to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. And so his heart was heavy in the garden. One author describes it this way. As we watch Jesus pray in agony in Gethsemane, he has every right to turn his tearful eyes toward you and me and shout, this is your cup. You're responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should rightfully be thrust into my hand and yours, and instead Jesus freely takes it to himself so that from the cross he can look down at you and me, whisper our names and say, I drain this cup for you, for you who have lived in defiance of me, who have hated me, who have opposed me, I drink it all for you. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us, and it was not easy. Jesus was not running on autopilot in the garden or on the cross. It was not automatic. He had to learn to obey his father throughout his life so that he could die in our place. Jesus did not live life on autopilot. It wasn't automatic. Obedience did not come automatically to him. Instead, in order to obey his father completely, in order to obey the law completely, he had to suffer comprehensively. He had to be put in all kinds of situations and scenarios where he would be tempted as we are in every respect and where he would say no and where he would obey. His obedience was far from automatic. So please do not picture Jesus having an easy life Please do not picture him on autopilot, automatically obeying without even blinking an eye. In order to obey the law for us, in order to be the second Adam, he had to go through hell on earth. He had to experience pain and suffering and agony and sorrow and betrayal and hardship and heartbreak throughout his life so that he would be ready to die in our place. His life was not easy. His death was not easy. His life was not automatic His death 
was not automatic. In fact, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he became obedient unto death. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's why you should marvel at him this morning. Even though you've heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over again, be amazed again this morning, Grace. Marvel at your Savior and what he went through throughout his life and then in his death. And then come, come to the Lord's table this morning and feast on his grace. Come as you are. Come as the sinner you are and call on the Lord. What does David say in Psalm 32? Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Well, what's the context? What has David said for the five verses Before that, he's saying that God is found when we acknowledge our sin. Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. When is God found? When we acknowledge our sin. And we acknowledge our sin this morning as we approach the table today. Let's pray. Father, what can we say We feel utterly unworthy in the face of Christ's unspeakable sufferings. We are sorry. It was our sin that brought this to pass. It was we who struck him and spit on him and mocked him. Oh, Father, we are so sorry. We bow ourselves to the dirt and shut the mouths of our small, dark, petty, sinful souls. Oh, Father, touch us with fresh faith that we might believe the incredible. The very pain of Christ that makes us despair is our salvation. Open our fearful hearts to receive the gospel. Waken dead parts of our hearts that cannot feel what what must be felt, that we are loved with the deepest, strongest, purest love in the universe. Oh, grant us to have the power to comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And may we be filled with all the fullness of God. Fight for us, O God, that we not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, it's too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great, hell is too terrible, eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Oh God, open our eyes to the vastness of the sufferings of Christ and what they mean for sin and holiness and hope and heaven. We fear our bent to trifling. Make us awake, awake to the weight of glory the glory of Christ's incomparable incomparable sufferings in his great and wonderful name. Amen.